Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the God of all hope. May he bless you in believing. Amen. So where is your hope? Where do you place your hope? And what brings your hope? What are the things that increase your hope and what are the things that decrease your hope on a daily basis? Is there anything in this world more hopeless than death? Can we think of anything that has less hope? If a loved one is dying, what do we hope for? Does this anticipation of death bring us hope? And what even more if that loved one is your child? Does thinking of the loss and death of a child increase your hope or decrease your hope? This is the reason why the ruler of the synagogue is desperate to find Jesus when his little girl is sick. And this is why the people around Jesus laugh at him when he comes into the room of a dead girl and says she's just sleeping. Jesus sees things in a different way, but he is not distant and unaware of what we're going through. The book of Romans that we read says that the whole creation groans and labors as a woman in birth, in child labor. It says that we are waiting for God to deliver us from the labor into a new birth. It's subjected to this painful process. A sense of futility at times. Why is this all happening but not because God is willingly wanting this to happen, but because he has hope. Because God has hope, and so we should have hope too. But hope in what? Hope that the pain of the labor that we're experiencing is going to lead to something better. A new birth where the sons of God are revealed in the heavenly glory of the new creation, and finally, this world that is groaning can rest. Finally, God and his people can rejoice with unending joy. But the reason why this is hope is because it's not here yet. Because if the hope were here already, we wouldn't need hope. There would be no need for hope in the new creation, in the glory of heaven, in the resurrection. There's no need for hope. Hope is for now because we can't see it yet. Because if we hope in what we already see or we already have or things have worked out, if that increases our hope, then it's an empty hope and it's going to lead to disappointment. But instead, we are groaning because there's something deep inside of us that we can't even put into words. And so the Holy Spirit has to enter us and intercede in our prayers because the groaning can be that deep that you can't even put it into words. So the Holy Spirit is groaning in your prayers with you. This is the hope. Jesus is coming. 
Jesus is here. Jesus can and Jesus will. Jesus is coming, Jesus is here, Jesus can and Jesus will. And we've seen the proof positive that this is all about Jesus. It's what he came to do, it's what he can do, and it's what he will do as we look at our text today. In Luke chapter 8, there are four miracles. Four miracles, each done by Jesus with the power of God. The first is a storm threatening a shipwreck, a total disaster and loss of life until Jesus speaks. The second is a madman who has been wandering around the villages in the countryside, living in the graveyard, shouting curses and profanity so that the people do not even go near him. Jesus again speaks a word. Then thirdly, you have the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and no doctor can cure her or even identify what's causing it, a chronic sickness, and Jesus speaks a word. And finally, a young girl is dying and is in fact dead as Jesus visits her bedside and Jesus speaks a word. In each case, the circumstances of creation are groaning. They are in labor and pain because of these four things that we are seeing. The sea is churning. The mind is swirling. The body is hurting. And death is groaning. So as we look at this, what is Luke trying to communicate to us through the gospel? What is he trying to say with these four miracles? If you want to understand what the gospel is doing, you have to read the whole thing. You can't just read even a select portion, even a chapter. You have to read the whole thing. And Luke has a purpose in mind when he begins this chapter with a parable. Chapter 8 of Luke begins with a parable, and it's the parable of the farmer who goes out to sow seed. Christians who misplace their hope are like seed which will never last. And Jesus tells a parable to show this, that Christians who misplace their hope are like seed that never comes to the full harvest. He says a farmer went out to sow seed and it was hidden away in the ground so that those who were watching at first couldn't tell what was going to happen to these people in their lives, where their heart was. But in time it would prove itself. Not at first. At first, some had the hope snatched away because the devil came. And before they could even realize what true hope is, because they were so lost in false hopes, he snatches it away before it ever takes root. Others have their hope starved out because they've rooted it on some weak, rocky ground, something that can't provide a lasting nourishment. They're excited at first. They think they have hope. They're overfilled with happiness and joy for having found this beautiful, wonderful God that loves them. 
But as time goes on, and as they are tested in that hope, they wither. They don't last. Still others have a hope that is choked out. It's choked out because they've filled their lives with too many false hopes. From greed to lust to riches to success, they've surrounded themselves with all these different things that feel like hope, like security, like a better future, that seem to alleviate some of the troubles they're experiencing at the moment, but in time, that just ends up choking out the true hope, the hope which endures and the hope which lasts. In each case, if hope was only in a momentary relief, these Christians are deceived. If we live for the moments, if we live for a temporary solution, without seeing that Jesus has a long-range vision to the miracles he's performing, wanting people to be on a trajectory towards something bigger and better that's coming, we will be deceived because we won't know how the kingdom works. We'll be snatched, we'll be starved, or we'll be choked. Instead, Jesus says, this is what the hope of the kingdom is like. It's like a farmer who put a seed in the ground on the good soil. And he cultivated the soil, worked it and nourished it, and patiently waited. Because that seed took root in an honest heart. And the heart held fast to the word. Not just for a moment. Not just in a good season. But in the long, enduring harvest. So that one season after another season after another season. As the weather changes, as some are big, some are small, it keeps on producing fruit. This is what God's kingdom is like. And he, he adds at the end, they hold fast with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. If you compare the other times Jesus speaks this parable, Luke is the only one who records this word at the end. Patience. That's why I believe that the four miracles that follow are all about patience. The parable is introducing what the kingdom is and what we should expect, and then the miracles are working out the gospel so we can see what patience is meant to do. Jesus is coming, Jesus is here, Jesus can, and Jesus will. In each case, you see people who are in hopeless situations. You have a fishing boat caught in the middle of a sea in a storm. There's no way out of that. You have a madman possessed, not just by one demon, but by a legion of demons so that he lives out in the graveyards, lost and alone? There's no hope for that. You have a woman who's got a chronic illness for 12 years, and she's paid every penny to see every doctor, and they can't give her any answers. There's no hope for that. And you have a little girl who was sick, and because Jesus got delayed and had a lot of people asking for his help along the way, 
she died. He didn't get there in time. Why bother him? There's no hope for that. But Paul says, in this hope we are saved. For hope that is seen is not hope. True hope is not seen apart from Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. There's a progression here from beginning to end, from the storm to the death. First, you have the disciples who should know better. The ones who have been with Jesus, who have been taught Jesus, who just heard the parable, and here they are in the boat, and in a moment's notice, they're panicked and terrified, even though Jesus is with them. Where is your faith, he says? Where is your patience when things seem hopeless, when you are deeply troubled, when you're afraid? Then you have the Gentiles across the sea who he travels to a foreign land and finds these Gentiles who know nothing about the Bible. And they're terrified by Jesus' power too because they've seen this man wandering around their villages and countryside. And here comes Jesus and deals with a legion of demons that he sends into some pigs who fall over the cliff. They're terrified. But the man is made well. The man wants to follow Jesus. And he says, return to your home and tell them what God has done for you. The patience that it takes to realize that man might have suffered for years and years like that. Then you have the ruler of the synagogue who's begging Jesus, but Jesus is thinking he's going to come, and then he's delayed by the crowds, and his daughter died. The patience. And the woman along the way who's got no help. Doctors can't help her. Medicine, science, even religion can't help her. So we're learning that the kingdom means to hold on to the word with an honest heart, and to bear fruit with patience. To know that God's answers and solutions and miracles don't always come the time we decide we want them to come. In the violence of a storm, in the madness of our minds, in the frustration of a chronic illness, and in the most hopeless of all, the death of a child. They laugh at him. Now we have understood what the gospel is doing here. It's not intending to give us hope in a Jesus who fixes things, who takes away pain, who makes this world a better place that we want to stay in a little bit longer. He's not doing these miracles so you can hope for the same exact miracles to happen in your life because they probably haven't and they might not. How many faithful believers have lost children through no fault of their own? Jesus is showing us five things. Firstly, he cares. Jesus cares. 
He's lived under the curse. He knows what it means to see people groaning. He knows what Jairus is going through as a father, and that is why he comes. He's been in the ship. He's seen the madman. He knows what it is to take a little girl by the hand, to hold the little hands of every baby, every child, even when they're still in the womb. He cares. Secondly, he listens. If you ask, never doubt that he is listening. Even if it seems he is delaying, even if you think that he's just busy helping someone else, even if he gets there late or makes you wait 12 years, he is listening. He says, ask, and keep on asking. He says, knock and keep on knocking. He says, seek and keep on seeking. Don't stop. Be persistent. Don't give up on him. Because he's doing more than just listening. He's teaching you something in the process. The third thing is that he's teaching you. He's teaching you something in that process of patience, of not just giving you right away what you're asking for. He's doing things for you. He's doing things through others around you and through you. He's teaching you faith, hope, love, patience. So his answer might come in a time of testing. Are you just asking for the miracle or are you asking for Jesus? That's the key here. He wanted his disciples to remember in the storm to ask for him, not just a rescue and relief from the circumstance. There is hope, not that we see the miracle right away, but that we see Jesus and know he is coming, he is here, he can, and he will. So fourthly, he acts. He does things. He does things with power. Don't doubt his power to do miracles. He can and he will when he is ready. Even if we are not seeking the miracle for the sake of this world, we might not be seeing it. It does not mean not to ask. It does not mean that we should doubt miracles and that we should not ask for miracles because they never happen to ordinary people like us. No. Keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, but know that the kingdom is meant to bear fruit with patience. He rebukes his disciples because they have a lack of patience, a lack of faith. The prayer of a righteous man avails much, So the Bible says, call for the elders of the church. The book of James says, call for the elders of the church. If someone is sick, call for the pastor and the elders, and they will pray over him and anoint him with oil, and the prayer of faith will heal him, will save him, rescue him, raise him up, however God works that out. I should be out 
coming to your houses and visiting you when you're sick. I should call you when you're in the hospital, but you know what? I don't always keep up with things very well. I forget. The text is saying, call me. Don't let me forget. Ask for the elders to come, not just one, but two or three, to be by your bedside to pray over you, to share the word of God with you. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. It's saying, you should ask the church to come, and we will bring Jesus with us to you. That you may be healed. Lastly, Jesus delivers. He's coming, he's here, he can and he will. He will means he delivers. He does not let us down. The pattern of all discipleship is to understand how this works that he delivers. Because right after this text, right after Jesus has done great things to help these people that were so hopelessly lost, the very next thing Luke goes to is the cross. And Jesus says, I must suffer. He says, I must be rejected. He says, I must die. Because his ministry is not in earthly glory. Instead, discipleship means knowing that hope is real and he's going to do it. But with Jesus, we suffer. And he delivers us through the cross and through his resurrection. That's why Paul is writing about the present sufferings. In Romans chapter 8, when he says, Cry out, Abba, Father, for the Spirit bears witness with ours that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. When does the suffering happen? Now. When does the glory happen? Then. That's why Paul is just enraptured with this thought of the Spirit's work in us to groan with all creation, but that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. So that in the end, he's going to raise us up. The glory of Jesus is his resurrection, his power to raise up our mortal fallen bodies, which get sick, which suffer, which die and to lay hold of him now so that the same power that raised him from the dead would fill our hearts with life now. And then, no matter what suffering is going on and what circumstances are around us, people can see that something is different in these Christians. Something is different in them in how they handle the trial because they have it in their hearts, that the risen Lord is reigning. Hold fast to the word with an honest heart and bear fruit with patience. That is hope for those who are hopeless and help for those who are helpless. And Jesus comes to bring you hope.